Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Good morning. Like you said, my name is Philip. I am honored to be here. I don't take any opportunity to present the Word of God lightly. Uh, And so I have been praying for you and for this message today and for the series you guys are in. Now, when Seth asked me to come, he said, okay, you can speak in the series that we're in or you can do your own thing. But here's the deal. I listened to your guys' podcast. And I was also a little troubled when Parker was born and we went from one series into Habakkuk and I got confused. And then we went back into that series for a week. And we started this new one, and we're like, VBA instead. So I'm like, let's stay with the series. Let's keep the continuity alive. So we're going to be in this series that you are in, in Galatians, called Rethinking Religion. That's why the graphic's up. Uh, A little about me. I am from the Sacramento area. I'm a student currently. I go to William Jessup University. I'm studying Christian leadership uh, in a ministry focus, so it's a ministry degree. I'm not a normal student meaning I'm 27, so I'm like much older than the people I go to school with, and some of you are rolling your eyes, but it's okay. Um, I am married. My wife's name is Carissa. She is a nurse. Together we have a daughter. She's 16 months. Her name is Reagan. I have a picture of them because that's what good speakers do. This is my world right here, mostly the little one that's about to pull that snow cone out of the little paper cup and spill it everywhere, and she did, so uh, that's, those are my girls. I love them dearly, miss them dearly, but uh, you know, they, they're the reason I do what I do. I'm also uh, an intern in the young adults department at a church called Sun Grove in Elk Grove that we call home. And uh, that's literally all I got about myself. Like, I am, when you have to introduce yourself, like, and give you facts, like, I'm the most boring person. I'm supposed to tell you, like, sometimes I watch Netflix. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. So uh, that's me. And so if you haven't been here in Rethinking Religion, let me, let me catch you up. This is a study of the book of Galatians. Now, Galatians was written by a man named Paul. It's probably his first letter he wrote. Uh, He wrote in AD 49, which uh, means very little to us, but it is important to know how close to when Jesus came. He wrote it. He wrote in AD 49. And the theme of the book is that the just shall live by faith. He's going to explore grace, which is kind of a newer concept because this this area is a Roman province that's uh, occupied with both Jews and Gentiles. So he's going to be presenting grace throughout the book. And the book is really a response to these Jewish people who are telling these Gentile people, you cannot be a follower of Jesus unless you follow our Jewish law and tradition. And so this is really a response to that. And so the first week, uh, Seth talked about the fact that he, he introduces the concept of the gospel. And what is the gospel? Talking about the good news of Jesus coming and living a perfect life and dying for our sins and rising again. And through that, we have redemption. So that's the first week, that what is the gospel? And the second week was the fact that if you are presented with a truth that says you have to earn anything, you have to keep these religious traditions going on, if you're presented with any of that, that's not good news. That's not the gospel. That is some false teaching that we need to get out of here. And Paul's going to transition from that, and throughout the rest of chapter one, he's going to present his story a little bit. And so today, we are going to go through Paul's own telling of his story. And Paul's going to walk us through from his birth to the point of his missionary journeys, what he's been up to, 
right? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be at Galatians chapter 1. We're going to get from verse 11 through verse 24. Just, I promise we'll get there. So if you're like type A and you're like, why aren't you going faster? I promise we'll get there. And if you have a, a, when you walked in with your bulletin, there's a handout in there. There's going to be fill-ins. You could put them to the side for a while, but I will get to those also. Um, So starting in verse 11, chapter 1, Paul says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice in verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, the gospel that was preached by me, now that's, see, I kicked something already. That's past tense for a reason. And that's because Paul is saying, when I was with you, I preached the gospel to you. He's not talking about the beginning of the book. It's too short. He hasn't done this past tense thing. He's saying, when I was with you. See, what we need to understand about Paul's relationship with these Galatians was that he knew them. He spent some time there. I put it as a reference in your handout, but Acts chapter 13 and 14 is Paul's first missionary journey. And he's going to talk about the fact that he went to this Galatian region. I believe I have a map up here. Oh, look at that resource. Um, So here we go. I'm going to walk over to this one. If you're on that side, hopefully look. Um, But Galatia is going to be up here, right there in that region. It's in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And it consisted of four cities that Paul went to. The first one was called Pisidian Antioch. The second one, Iconium. The third one, Lystra. And the fourth one, Derbe. And what happened in these cities is really important to why he's writing the book. So he goes out on his first missionary journey, right? And he goes to a place called Pisidian Antioch. This is the first place in the Galatian region he's going to present the gospel. And he shows up and he presents the gospel. And the people are like, that was good. Come back next week. And he's like, all right, I'll come back next week, which, by the way, has never happened to me as a guest speaker, but it's fine. I'm okay. Um, So he, he goes back the next week. And these Jews that want these people to follow this religious tradition come back and they combat him. And they're like, Paul, Uh, He's traveling with Barnabas, like, Paul and Barnabas, you need to get out of here. We don't want you in our town. This gospel you're presenting to the Gentiles doesn't have enough law in it. So they leave, and they go to the next town, which is Iconium, and, and they present the gospel, but there's a plot to kill Paul because these Jews from the first city followed them to the second city. It's like they said, please leave, but then they're like, but we're gonna hang out and make trouble for you some more. So there's a plot to kill them by the Jews and the non-Christian Gentiles, so Paul leaves. He's like, no, I'm done. I'm not doing this. I'm gonna sneak out. I don't need to die for this. And he goes to Lystra, which is the third city. This is where it gets weird. And you're like, that's not weird yet? Trust me. In Lystra, he shows up and there's a lame man. And the lame man says, Paul, and this is uh, Acts 14, if you wanna look at it this week. He says, "Uh, heal me. And so Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, heals this man. He gets up and walks. The people of Lystra say, wait, Paul's got to be a God. Only gods can heal people. So they start to worship Paul and Barnabas like they're gods. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, guys. I'm not a God. I'm not a God. I I follow God, and I present the gospel of Jesus, who was God, but I am not God. And because he said that, the people then, because of these people from the other cities that have been following him, they decide they want to kill him, so they stone him. Uh, they, throw, they throw these rocks in. They, I don't know if he gets knocked out. I don't know what happens, but he doesn't die, but they think he's dead. They take him out of the city, and they throw him out, and the Bible says that he gets up somehow, and he dusts off his shoes, and he goes on, and he goes to the town called Derby. They have a huge gospel response, and then he returns to where they started through all of these cities, and so when he says, you guys remember the gospel I preached to you, right? He's calling their memory back to when he was there. He says, don't you remember? 
Like, I literally got stoned for this gospel. And it's because it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. It did not come from man. Continuing on in verse 13, he says this, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So we need to look at Paul's life as a Jew. Now, when he was a Jew and he was a Pharisee, Paul was not named Paul. Paul was named Saul. Smart name change. If you're out persecuting Christians, you should definitely change your name if you don't want to do that anymore. So he's out, and Saul is persecuting Christians. We're introduced to him at the stoning of a man named Stephen, where he's approving of what's going on. It makes him happy to see Stephen dying because he's dying following Jesus, and Saul's like, yeah, I'm not about that. That Jesus thing's fake. And what happened was the Pharisees actually had put him in charge of people who opposed the way of life, this rabbinic tradition and this Pharisee life, he, put, he was in charge of those people. And his path, was, he was a prodigy. This wasn't a normal thing. He was too young to be having followers, but yet he is out persecuting the church. He writes of himself in this time in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if someone else thinks they have a reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So we need to notice some of these things he says in here. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. So he says, like, I had a Jewish start. I followed the law from the start. My parents, I was born in Tarsus, but my parents took me to Jerusalem where I grew up, to the temple, to have me circumcised. Like I had a right start. And then he says, of the people of Israel. So I'm an Israelite. That's a good sign. So he's doing all these check marks that these Pharisees looked at. All right, so you're circumcised? Yes. Okay, so you're a true Israelite. You're not like mixed? Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was uh, was he an Israelite, but he was from a very prestigious tribe. He was from the tribe that the first king of Israel, Saul, was from probably who he's named after, but I can't prove that. And then from there, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means with all this Roman invasion happening in our land, I have still kept true to being a Hebrew. I have not let that Roman way of life into my life. I have not let it make me messy. And then he says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I knew it. I followed it. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. I put all my effort into persecuting the church. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I kept it to a T. That's Saul. That's Saul. And he, in every way, is just the ideal Pharisee. But I know us, right? We are in America, in Western culture, in the 21st century. So when we hear Pharisee, it's like a villain in a movie. We're like, dun, dun, dun. Pharisee. We do not like Pharisees. But here's the deal. When we think of Pharisee, we have a negative connotation, but the people of that time did not. See, they thought the Pharisees were doing the right thing. They were the most spiritual. And what the Pharisees serve as to us is not just showing us what it's like to oppose Christ, but what the Pharisees show us is what it looks like when we allow things that we think are important to be more important in our lives than Jesus himself. See, sometimes we have this thing where we're like, no, these traditions are right, these traditions are wrong, these things are worth dying for, and we put our necks out for them, and we give everything we have to following these things that we think are right, but the reality is if we have put them above the things that Jesus taught and above the things of the Bible, we have put them in the wrong place. And what Saul's life 
serves as, as all the lives of the Pharisees, is when we put things in a place where it doesn't belong, it becomes a God, and that is not what God called us to do. So he's saying, while I had all these um, accomplishments in my flesh, those were mine. And he's going to do a flip. See, if you've read 13 and 14, it says, these are all the things I did, right? Philippians 3, these are all the things I did. And then he flips it in Galatians uh, 1.15 to what God has done, which is what grace is all about, right? It's not what we do, it's what he does. Verse 15, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I know because I listened to the podcast that Seth has covered this, but let me give you a quick recap. Acts chapter 9, Saul is out. He's on the way to Damascus. He has marching orders from the Pharisees to arrest anybody that stands in the way of what they're doing, to arrest anybody who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, right? And he's on his way to Damascus, and all of a sudden, a bright light comes and blinds him, and a voice from heaven, an audible voice from heaven, which would freak all of us out. Let's not pretend we're more spiritual than this. It would freak us all out. An audible voice from heaven says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul is blinded by the light. He's taken to the city of Damascus. Three days later, a man named Ananias comes. He lays his hands on him. The scales fall from his eyes. And from that point on, Saul is following Jesus. He shortly changes his name because, like I said, that's a smart move. And he changes his name to Paul. And we see great things come from him. But only because God had to do something in his heart. God had to take a hold of him. And I think if we're honest, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, we have all had that moment where God is saying, why are you trying to do this on your own? Grace is all about what he does, not what we do. So when we are doing our best to be righteous, to be holy, to save ourselves because we think that's the right thing to do, God says, what are you doing? Don't you remember what Jesus came and died for? Don't you remember what this was all about? And the same is true of Saul. His life is forever changed. And he's going to go on from this point to describe what happens between that and coming to Galatia. And I put that in your notes because there's going to be a lot of things I can't read just because of time because he did give me a time limit and he lied about that, but it's fine. Um, Back to verse 15. I'll read it again. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, Cephas is his legal name, and remained there with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now, this is a crazy little quick recap of 14 years. And like he just gives it to us as if we know the story because the Galatians knew the story. They had heard it. He had been there, but we haven't. So let's learn the story real quick. The first thing he does, he goes from Damascus and he goes into Arabia. I got the map back up here because what I want you to know is that this is not Saudi Arabia. Now we hear Arabia, we're like, oh, Saudi Arabia. But Arabia is that land on the southeasternmost portion of the green there that is in between Egypt and Israel. It's in between Egypt and Israel. And this is actually pretty important because Arabia is the location, according to Paul in Galatians 4.25, Arabia is the location of a place called Mount Sinai. Now, when he says to Jewish people, I went into Arabia, they're probably thinking, oh, he went to Mount Sinai. 
And we don't think that way. That's why we have this map that I found on Google. And what happens at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament is incredible. It's Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. It's called the mountain of God. And the things that happen at Sinai are nothing more than miraculous. The first thing we see in Exodus chapter 3 is Moses is out being a shepherd. He's grown up in Pharaoh's palace. He killed a man. He got caught. He ran away, right? He's been a shepherd for 40 years, living in obscurity, and all of a sudden he's walking with his sheep and there's a bush on fire? And you're like, okay, that's weird because it's not burning up. So he walks over to it, the burning bush happens there. And that's the commissioning of Moses to go lead the people out of Egypt. That's the first one. Second one is after they're out of Egypt, the Israelites come there in Exodus 19, and they're camped at Sinai for a while. See, that is where God delivers the law to Moses to be delivered to the people. That is where God makes his covenant relationship terms, which is the law, with the people of Israel to the people of Israel. That's where he makes it known. This is the commissioning of the nation of Israel to go take the promised land. It's the second thing that happens there. The third thing that happens there is in 1 Kings 19. Uh, with a man named Elijah. We might know this, but when we're thinking about this, we're like Moses and Elijah, Old Testament characters. When Jewish people hear this, they're like Moses and Elijah, superheroes. Like that's how they see these people. These are their action figures of the day. Their kids play with Moses dolls and Elijah dolls, or action figures. Sorry, you don't call them dolls. I know the rules. Um, And so Elijah goes there, and it's right after he's rained down fire from heaven, and he's depressed. And he goes there, and that's where God makes his presence known to Elijah in a still, small voice. See, Mount Sinai is important, and I'm going to step away because he never says he goes to Sinai, but I'm going to step away from my Bible so I can say this. I'm pretty sure that's where Paul goes when he's there for three years, and what's happening in those three years, what's happening when he's at Mount Sinai or when he's in Arabia is he's actually delivered the gospel that he received directly from Jesus. That's the claim he's been making. This is where that theology comes from. This is where he receives his call to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, And the irony of that, right? A man who hates Gentiles going to present the gospel to the Gentiles. A man who thinks the Gentiles are scum, they're dogs, they're nothing like us. Yet, that's who God calls him to. And he spends three years out here getting the gospel message straight from God. I will make the rest of it shorter, I promise. Then he goes to Damascus, and he's preaching the gospel in Damascus until there's a plot to kill him. This is going to be a theme of his life, and he knows what to do. He sneaks out at night, and he goes to Jerusalem. He's there for 15 days. He meets with Peter. He meets with James. He moves on to uh, Calicia, which is where Tarsus is. So he goes to his hometown again, and he builds tents for some years. And then Barnabas comes from Antioch in Syria, which is his uh, home base, his home church. He comes there and he recruits Paul to be a part of these gospel uh, missionary journeys. Then from there, he goes to Jerusalem. You guys will cover that next week at uh, Galatians 2. Then he goes to Antioch to start his first missionary journey. And that's where we are when he writes this. And that's a lot of information. And we will have a test after. And you guys got this, right? There's a reason I'm telling you this. This isn't just because I did a bunch of research and I'm really excited to tell you, although I did a bunch of research and I'm really excited to tell you. This is because what Paul is saying is, these are the steps I took from the time I was born to the time I spent with you, and nowhere in that time did this gospel come from anyone but God. 
He is showing the validity of him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He is showing the people, look, I have not been skewed by other teachers. These people that have been following me around city to city trying to have me killed, they didn't have a hand in this gospel. The gospel came directly from God, and I did not let man or my own opinion skew what Jesus did for us. But the important thing to ask is, what does that have to do with us? Right? Because this is a really cool history lesson. This is a really cool catching up that he does with the people. But what does Paul's story have to do with us? I think there's two truths, two main truths for us to see today in 21st century America that we can glean from this. And these are actually your fill-ins. The first one is this. God uses Paul's unique story to reveal that the gospel is for everyone. God uses Paul's unique story to reveal that the gospel is for everyone. Like he has said, and I have said of Paul, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He has been called an apostle by God, and he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And like I said, Jews don't like Gentiles. Here's the deal, guys. Jews thought that the Gentiles were second-class citizens on earth. But if you read the Old Testament, you see all kinds of Gentiles coming to faith in, in God and their righteousness is counted um, by their faith, and they are part of Israel, right? And you're like, wait, what about them? See, here's the deal about the Jews. The Jews thought the Gentiles were second-class citizens on earth, and they thought they were second-class citizens in heaven. See, they just did not think that God loved these Gentiles enough to put them on the same level. And what a sad truth. Like, what a sad thing to believe about other people that you would believe in your heart of hearts that God has not called a certain people to know him. But the reality is through his story, Paul's unique story, he reveals that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. In writing about the gospel, Paul describes the gospel as a mystery. He says that the mystery of the gospel was revealed to me. That's obviously going to happen in that time uh, in Arabia in those three years. And in Ephesians 3, 6, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel, and he says this, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. See, here's the deal. What Paul is revealing to us is that these Gentiles are not second-class citizens. These Gentiles are not lesser than these Jews. These Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan to be co-heirs with Jews. This family of God is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family that we are a part of if we are followers of Christ which is good news, because most of us are Gentiles, right? Like, what if this part wasn't in there and we were second-class citizens? Like, that's not how God speaks of us. And the reality is that Paul came to share that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan, but he also came to share to the Jews that grace is the answer to righteousness. Like, they wanted to be made right with God through their own actions, but we know in reading the Bible that that is impossible. Romans 3.20, Paul writes this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, what the law did is it didn't reveal to anybody how to be righteous. It revealed to people that they couldn't. And so when you're, when you're met with the fact that you can't make it on your own, you say, then what hope do I have? And the hope that we have is in a man named Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, died for us, rose again, so that we have a chance at redemption. That is what hope we have. So these Jews, these people who were saying, no, you have to follow the law perfectly or this never works, 
Paul was there to tell them, I tried that, and it doesn't lead to salvation. I've tried that, and it's hopeless. Because every day you wake up, you mess up. If we're honest, right, in church, we're allowed to be honest, right? Am I allowed to be honest up here? I mess up every single morning, right? Like, I mess up every day. It doesn't matter what I'm trying to do that's right. I screw it up because I'm human. I'm flawed. We all have shortcomings. We can't do it on our own. But praise be to God that he saw that and said, I got an answer for you. His name is Jesus. And to the Jews, Paul says, I've been a Pharisee. I tried to do it. I kept the law, and that is not salvation. That's self-righteousness. And that's not the answer. And so not only does God say, I love the Gentiles enough to send them somebody, he says, I love the Jews enough to show them through the life of Paul that the answer is found only in Jesus. His unique story to reveal that the gospel is for everyone. The second thing is this, that God needs to work in you before he can work through you. God needs to work in you before he can work through you. Verse 16, it says that he was pleased to reveal the son to me. But if you look at the original Greek, it says that he was pleased to reveal his son in me. See that God had to reveal Jesus in the life of Paul before Paul could do anything. His story serves as a reminder that Paul had to go off and get some training done. Paul had to go off and meet with Jesus. He had to grow. He had to spiritually mature before God was going to throw him to these people that were trying to kill him. Because I don't know about you, but if these people were trying to kill me at the moment of my salvation, Paul probably would have thought, oh, I made a mistake. I should go back. I still have a chance. But the reality is, is that God says, if I save you, I am working in you, and I want to use you to reach the world for him. The gospel must first save us. The gospel has to take hold in our hearts. If we're here today and we have not been redeemed by the free blood of Jesus Christ through grace, if we have not received that gift of salvation, that's the first step. See, God has to work in us before he can work through us. Because following Jesus, after we have accepted the gospel, following Jesus requires some life change. You cannot follow Jesus and remain the same. You be saved and keep living the same exact life you were beforehand. That's not how this works. I'm reminded of this because I was just at a high school reunion. I just celebrated my 10th year out of high school, which is a celebrates the weird word. It made me real depressed for a minute, but I'm okay. Um, and so I went to my 10-year high school reunion, uh, and I graduated in a class of, of 40 people. I went to a, a private Christian school in Lodi. I graduated with 40 people. And so it wasn't like this great big bash. We went to somebody's house. There was like 15 of us there. It was fun, but that, that's what we did. And I remember people were a little sad when I came in because they were like, I kind of expected high school Philip to show up. And I was like, thank God he didn't. He was the worst. See, I wasn't a Christian in high school, but I was also kind of terrible in high school. Like, I, I didn't take anything seriously right? Everything was a joke to me. Nothing mattered all that much. I didn't invest my time in people, in relationships, in things. And so I show up to this party and these people are like, man, it's crazy that Phil, they called me Phil in high school because again, I was the worst. They said, it's crazy that Phil has a kid. And I'm like, I, I guess, but I'm 10 years older. I've matured, I hope, because if we stay the same in life, people look at that and go, oh, that's sad. And the reality is in our Christian life, if we have been following Jesus for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but yet we look like it's day one, that's rough. 
And we have to take a real look at our lives and see the fact that that's not what this is supposed to be. It's requiring this constant life change. It's a process called sanctification. That's like the most churchy word I'll use today. Sanctification is the process by which we are molded and made into the image of God. It's a process through the Holy Spirit that is used to take the things out of our lives that don't need to be there and to put more of Jesus back into us. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to finish sanctification. It's never going to happen. But it's this process where we are more like Jesus. So when we look at our lives and we say, Ugh, I don't like what I'm looking at, that action, that sin, that thing that keeps tripping me up is rough, I need to let God work in me and let God get some stuff done. Um, recently, I had this thing, maybe some of you have had it, where I was like looking in the mirror and I didn't like it. You guys ever have that where you look in the mirror and it's not just a bad morning, it's like a bad year. And so I'm like, I need to do something about this. And so I joined a gym. Let me tell you, I hate the gym. I don't know about you. I don't know if you guys work out all the time, CrossFit people post on Facebook, whatever, but I hate the gym. I can't stand it. It hurts. It's too hot in there. It's too loud in there. I don't know what I'm doing most of the time, so I'm just winging it. And I don't, I don't like being at the gym, but here's the deal. I looked at my life and I said, this is not healthy. This is a path that's going to lead me down deeper and deeper into a hole I can't dig myself out of, so I got to do something about it. And like I said, sanctification is looking at your life saying, I don't like that, and doing something about it. And we don't do this on our own. Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, comes and he makes this happen in our lives. And it's that constant life change that shows us that he's with us. It's that constant life change that's working in us so that God can work through us. See, Paul said of his life in Judaism, he said, I was faultless. I had it all together. But then he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, Losing things hurts and changing can hurt, but the reality is whatever we think we're giving up that means so much to us, it's worth it for the sake of what God is trying to do in us and through us. Paul had to give up more than we will. Paul had to give up this life as a prodigy, this respect that he had, this career path that he was on. He was on a path to become the Pharisee of, of Pharisees, like, like the greatest in the Sanhedrin. He was on a great path, but he gave it up for the sake of Christ. And maybe today God's calling you to give something up, but you don't like that. And I get it. I really do. I get that. But the reality is that for the sake of Christ, it's worth it. It's worth it. See, God wants to do work through your life. God wants to do work through your life. And he wants to do work through your story because your story is powerful. That's why Paul is sharing his story because the fact that God took him from a Pharisee of Pharisees to a follower of Christ who's presenting the gospel to so many people in so many different towns is powerful. It says in Galatians, finishing out that chapter, starting in verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. They glorified God because of Paul's story. Nothing that Paul did, but the fact that God used Paul made them glorify God. And the reality is we all have a story in here. Yours might be messy. Yours might not be that messy. You might be ashamed of it. You might be proud of how far you've come. But we all have a story. 
And some of us in this room, when I'm saying that, are thinking of their story, and they become a little more ashamed of it, and they want to tuck it because they're like, I'm in church. I'm not supposed to have that past. I'm in church. That's not supposed to be me. And they see that, and they're thinking to themselves, man, God can't use this. This is too dirty. This is too messy. This is too unclean. This is too worldly. This is too human. God can't use this. I heard a quote uh, at Thrive Conference that I go to every year uh, from a lady named Megan Fate Marshman, and she said this, your past will either be God's greatest tool, or sorry, will either be the greatest tool God ever uses, or it will become Satan's greatest tool against you, your choice. See, when those voices are in our heads saying our past is too dirty, our story's not powerful, our story doesn't matter, I don't need to share that. When we have those voices in our heads, let me remind you, follower of Christ, that is not God talking to you. That is the enemy trying to shut down the most powerful thing God has given us, which is our story. And I promise you that if you allow that to cripple you and not share how far God has brought you, it just became Satan's greatest tool against you. Let Paul's story be an example to us that we have a, short, a story to share and we have a role to play. You have a role to play in what God is doing in the life of your family. You have a role to play in what God is doing in the life of this church, in the life of your community, in the life of Porterville as a whole. You each individually have a role to play. And if you don't believe that, that's where you got to start. That's where you got to let God work in you. Say, God, show me that I have a role to play in your kingdom, and I promise you, he will. He will. But you got to be willing to take a step out. you got to be willing to use your story. you got to be willing to step out in faith. I'm going to close with this. Uh, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 3. It's really popular. It's probably on a coffee mug at your house. Maybe not. Maybe it's on a keychain. Who knows? But it says this. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we hear that and we read it and we think to ourselves, man, God could do anything for me. And that's what we want to think of that verse. And I believe that's true, but that's not what this says. Notice what this says. Now, him who is able to do far abundantly more than we can ask or think, that's the part we're thinking of, according to the power at work within us. Within us. See, God can take anything from our lives and through the power of Jesus within us can make it more than we can ask or imagine. See, we think our story is too simple, too human, too sinful, too messy. But God says, through the work of the Spirit in you, that story becomes so much more than you think. You are one person, but through the work of the Spirit in you, you become more powerful than you can ever imagine. You can become more useful for the kingdom than you would ever think. And that's why we give glory to God, because he can take simple, broken people like us and do amazing things. Just like he took a very broken, very messy Paul and made him the author of a book we're studying today. 2,000 years later. The choice is ours. Whether you choose to believe that you have a role to play or not, God has a seat for you. God has a role for you to play. God has something for you to do. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for 
this church, God. I thank you for the opportunity to, to come here and to get to meet these great people. God, I know that you have plans for each of their lives. I know that you have things that you want to do in their communities, in their families, in this church, in Porterville, God. And I just pray that you would unleash your spirit among these people so that they can be unleashed to the world around them and show them or show the world around us the light that is you. God, I thank you for Paul's story. I thank you for this book, and I thank you for a church willing to take a look at your book and let it apply in their lives. God, I love you. I thank you for all you do in your name. Amen.